We are in Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Those of you who are pretty sharp will recognize that I read that scripture last week during our Christmas concert. And by the way, every year I say this, but every year it gets more true. Our choir, our orchestra, our tech team just knocked themselves out. I think they did the best job I've ever seen. That's the best Christmas concert I've ever been a part of. And I thought it was fantastic. So... Yeah, it was, it was awesome, it was wonderful, had me in tears all three times, uh, so thank you for that. Now, the Sunday before that, we talked about Joseph, and one of the things I said was, as this ordinary carpenter struggled with the decision, do I follow the command of God? Do I marry this young woman who I barely know, who's carrying a baby that's not mine? Do I raise this child as my own? All of those things are counterintuitive. All of those things are things that if you and I were living back then and we were giving somebody advice, we'd say, oh, no, don't do that. that you're gonna you throw your life away. But as he's making that decision, one of the things I said two weeks ago was, Joseph had to know that God didn't need him. That if he walked away and refused to do what God said, Jesus would still grow up, still save the world. So it's not like the salvation of humanity or the plan of God was hinging on Joseph's decision. And the reason I know that, there was a story in the Old Testament, some of you know it, in which the prophet Elijah is traveling from town to town and God says, okay, I want you to go to a village called Zarephath. There's a widow there who's going to take care of you. She's gonna house you and feed you. So when he gets to Zarephath, he meets this woman and when he meets her, she's gathering sticks to build a fire to bake her last loaf of bread. She's literally got one handful of flour and a little half inch of oil at the bottom of a jar and, she's, and so she's gonna bake one last loaf of bread and he, she and her son are gonna eat it and then they're gonna starve to death. And Elijah says, hey, um, tell you what, why don't you give me that loaf of bread and then God will take care of you. And sure enough, she obeys and the oil and the flour never run out. And that widow and her son are provided for. Now, Joseph knew that story. So he had to have said to himself, okay, God doesn't need me to provide for this woman and this child. He can provide for them himself. He can protect them. He can raise up this boy. Everything is going to be fine. So why did God even bring Joseph in? Well, here's one key, I think. Here's something you may not know. Psalm 68, verse 5. It says, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. If you read the Old Testament, and by the way, I know we're headed to the first of the year, and this is a time when a lot of Christians say, okay, this is the year I'm gonna read the whole Bible. And if that's your goal, I, I salute you. I think it's a great goal. I think you should do it. Just be warned, about mid-February, you're gonna hit Leviticus, and then numbers right after that. And those are tough books to get through. It gets better, okay? It's all the word of God. It's all special. But those two books are the two, probably the two hardest books in the Bible to get through. So don't give up. But if you read the Old Testament, and you read the whole Old Testament for the first time, one of the things you notice is there are three groups of people that keep coming up over and over again in the law and in the prophets. And those are widows, orphans, and immigrants. Why? It's not that God loves those people more than others. It's that those were the three groups of people in the ancient world that had literally no power whatsoever. If you were a widow, an orphan, or an immigrant, you had no status, you had no clout, you couldn't own land, you, you weren't esteemed by your community, and, and so people could abuse them, and, and there would be no consequences. Now, on the other hand, there was no reward for helping a widow, an orphan, or an immigrant. The only reason you would do that is because you love God and you know that God stands up for those people. 
And so with all that in mind, it's not surprising that when God himself chose to enter our world to rescue us, he came as a fatherless child. And he asked a righteous man to come and adopt that child. Now you fast forward 50 years and here's Jesus ascended into heaven after living a perfect sinless life, dying and atoning death on a cross, rising from the dead. He's gone, his apostles carry on the work after him. And the first, we believe the first of the biblical books to be written was probably the book of Galatians. Paul's writing this letter to his friends in Galatia, present day Turkey. And he writes and, he, and he's trying to tell them, here's why Jesus came. And so in Galatians 4, 4 through 7, this is the scripture I read last week. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So some of you know the uh, Bible teacher, author, Beth Moore, in one of her books, she tells about watching news one day. And they, there was a story on the news of a family who had a teenage son that died in a car wreck because his friend who was driving was drunk. And so the family loses their son and this boy who's driving the car, who's, who's real, literally responsible for their son's death, he gets away without a scratch. That's so often the case in these kinds of uh, incidences. And not only does his family forgive their son's friend, their son's killer, but they adopt him into their family. This boy grew up in a very dysfunctional home. By the time he's a teenager, his parents have nothing to do with him. He's just basically living from couch to couch, living with friends. And so they say, listen, we wanna give you a stable home. We want you to come here. And so the boy ends up sleeping in the bed of their son and, and sitting at his place at the table. And after a while, the father and, and his new adopted son, they go on tour and they start telling their story as, as a way of saying, avoid drunk driving, and this is what it means to forgive. And as, as Beth Moore is watching this on the news, she's thinking to herself, I don't think I could do that. And she, feel, she realizes she was weeping because just the thought of one of my kids being killed and then me not only forgiving, but adopting the person who did it. I just can't imagine doing that. And she thought, you know, it's so wrong. I'm a, I'm a Bible teacher. I, I teach the scriptures to thousands of people. How can I not be forgiving? And that's when it hit her. And it was like the Lord spoke, not in an audible voice, but she knew. She said, you know, the reason I can't wrap my mind around this is in this story, I'm not the parent who's struggling to forgive. I'm the, I'm the boy who is driving. I'm the one who needs forgiveness. I'm the one who needs adoption. And that's our story. That's the gospel story. See, a lot of people think that Christianity is, okay, here's 10 commandments and here's some other assorted uh, uh, rules and regulations. And if you do good, maybe you get into heaven when you die. That is absolutely not Christianity. Christianity is you and I were orphans. We were lost. Christ died for us. We are responsible for his death. And yet God the Father says, I don't just want to forgive you. I want to bring you in. I want to give you what he deserved, what is rightfully his, his place at the table, his title, his status, his life, his inheritance. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Because part of my thesis today, part of my idea is the reason that a lot of Christians and maybe some of you just aren't happy, just don't have joy. We sing songs, joy to the world, the Lord has come. 
You know, we don't feel that joy in our hearts. Jesus promised that we would have life more abundant. But there's a lot of Christians that would say, I I don't know, I'm not experiencing that. I don't know what's wrong with me. I think part of it is we just don't know how to live with God as our father. We We can see him as a consultant. Hey, Lord, I got this problem. Can you help me work this out? We can see him as a lucky charm. I went to church, Lord. Okay, now I'm gonna do well on this test this week, right? Now I'm gonna get that raise, right? We can see him as a first responder. I'm in trouble, Lord, come rescue me. Even as a judge, I think most human beings who believe in a God believes there's gonna be some kind of judgment, some kind of responsibility, accountability at the end. But the idea to say, okay, God is my father, to live with him as my father means admitting that I'm an orphan, that I can't do it on my own, that I need a father to to govern my life and to protect me and provide for me and to show me the way. And we stop short of that, and that's why we experience what we experience. In fact, I go further than that. I can't prove this. I don't know. I've not done the research. But if you, if you ever sat down with the people who so many grow up in church and then walk away, I bet if you sat down with them one by one, interviewed them, you'd find that in many, maybe even most cases, the God they were taught by their church, maybe by their families, the God they taught was not a father to the fatherless. He was a consultant. He was a first responder, a lucky charm, a judge. But he wasn't a father to the fatherless. So what changes? What changes when you really let God be your father? Some of you right now, you don't have a relationship with God at all. You may know who he is or you may know things about him, but you've never really been adopted into his family. And today can be the day. I mean, Christmas 2021 can be the time you look back on and say, that's when my life really began. That's when I found a family. And there are others of you here who would say, yeah, Jeff, I know that I'm saved, but I mean, I don't have that joy. What does it look like? What, is it, what happens if I really start to live with him as my father? Well, that's what we wanna talk about today. Three things. Number one, when you get adopted, when God is your father, you get a new status. See, in Paul's analogy, we're slaves by nature. Slaves to sin, slaves to the law. Slaves to the law because we wanna do good. We wanna live a righteous life. We wanna earn it. And that enslaves us and we can't get there. But we become sons. You know, the interesting thing about that analogy is it sounds weird because we think of, an, we think of adoption today in terms of uh, a parents go to a, an orphanage and they come home with a baby or a young child. But in the ancient world, that almost never happened. In the ancient world, there were no orphanages. In fact, there weren't any orphanages until Christianity. Christianity came up with the concept of an orphanage. In the ancient world, in the Roman world, adoptions were almost always of adults. So what would happen is a family that had money would be getting older and they would say, okay, we're getting up in years. We don't have any sons. Who are we gonna give this money to? Who are we gonna leave our estate to? And the head of the home would say, well, you know, I've got, I've got this slave who's done a really good job managing my farm or running my household finances or taking care of, of you know, the, the other details of my business. I really like him. I trust him. I think I'll give it to him. And so they would sign some papers that said, this person, my slave, is now my son so he can inherit. That's what Paul's picturing here. So what happens when a slave becomes a son? It's a couple of stories from, from present day read about a family that went to a foreign country, as so often happens, adopted a little girl, brought her home, and and didn't realize how bad the conditions had been where that little girl grew up until they'd been with her a while here. Because what they found was every day when that little girl woke up, she would immediately make her bed. 
Um, every, every night she would clean up her bathroom. Her bathroom was spotless. It looked like no one had ever been in there. Every time she finished playing with a toy, she would put it up. And one day the, the new mom and dad sit down and say, sweetie, you're doing a great job. You're really good at keeping things clean. And the little girl said, oh, does that mean that I can stay then? Because in her mind, this was all a tryout, right? This was like, okay, if I do good, if I'm easy to manage, if I make your life better, you'll, you'll love me, but otherwise I'm out the door. Because she came from an environment where either you performed or you were punished severely. She didn't realize, no, I'm, I'm their child now. I may not like it, but I could, I could do all kinds of horrible things. I'd still be their child. See, the difference between a slave and a child, a slave and a son, a slave performs so that they don't get punished. A, a, a son performs because he loves. Because, yeah, my father loves me because he did this for me. I want to do this for him. It's no other motive, just love. I'll tell you another story. A, a preacher uh, talked about when he, was, when he was growing up, his family adopted an older boy, 10 or 11 years old, and this, this boy came from a very rough background, and so at first things were difficult. This, this boy would get mad at his brothers and sisters and get in fights with them. He'd yell at them, he'd cuss at them, he'd steal things, he would hoard things in his room. And every time the dad would confront him and he'd sit down and he'd very patiently he'd say, listen, son, this is not how we act in our family. Maybe the way you acted back there, this is not how we act in our family. And over time, that boy began to see, oh, so it's actually better to do things the way they do things in this family. I, I think I'd be happier if I lived like the rest of my family. You see, again, that's the difference between a slave and a son. A slave mentality is, I need to fight for everything. It's me against the world. But a son mentality is, I'm protected, I'm provided for, I'm loved. And the way my family does things is better. It's actually better for me to obey. Even if it's harder to obey, even if it's easier to go out and, and just do what you want and treat people badly and cuss when you want and yell when you want and hit when you want and steal when you want. But if I live like my new family and God, I'm actually gonna be happier. Are you living like a slave or like a son? I'll tell you another story. This is from my own life. So when Will was little, and he's 18 now, Will's a great student. Never have to tell him to do his homework. Comes home, hits it, making great grades, we're proud of him. Wasn't always that way, right, Will? So 10 years ago, roughly 10 years ago, hated homework, right? Every night it was a, it was a struggle. It's like, Will, come on, you gotta do your math. I don't know, I hate math. Well, I do too, but you gotta do your homework. I wish I could get in a time machine, go back in time, kill the guy who invented homework so I wouldn't have to do my math tonight. Well, that's ingenious, but it's not gonna happen. So you gotta do your homework. And then one day I said to him, Listen, Will, everybody, this is true of everybody who's ever lived, all your life, you're gonna have some things that are, you get to do that are fun, and you have some other things that you have to do that you don't wanna do. That's always gonna be true. And the happy people are the ones who discover that you can do the things you don't wanna do with a good attitude. Because if you complain about them, it doesn't make things better, it just makes things worse. Now, that's not the wisdom of Solomon. I'm not claiming that I need to write a book about you know, how to do life or anything, but what I wish I would have said is, and I know you can't just magically change your attitude. I know you can't just wake up tomorrow all of a sudden loving math. But what you can do is you can say, God is my father. And if God is my father, he's only going to allow into my life the things that he wants there. That if he allows it into my life, then he's got a purpose for it. 
So this math homework is there in front of me. I don't like it, but it's a chance for me to do something I don't like with excellence to make him proud. I've got this person in my life that's bugging me, that's annoying me, that I don't like, but it's a chance for me to love somebody the way that I've been loved and to show the world who he is. I've got this circumstance in my life. I've broken, I've got a broken heart from a bad relationship or I've, I've got an injury or an illness or I've lost money or whatever the case may be. I've got full of anxiety, but I can look at that and say, okay, I didn't want that, but it's a chance to see his faithfulness. It's a chance to show the world that I can have joy even in the midst of this. Everything that happens, if you're a child of God, everything that happens, you know, came through the hands of your father. And so it's an opportunity to worship him. Are you living that way? I'm not saying, do you say, hooray, hard times? No, I'm saying that when the hard times come, do you say, yeah, but my dad's in charge. So I'm going to see what he does through this. I'm going to do my best to serve him because this is an opportunity to praise him. That's the mentality of a child and not a slave. So that's the new status. But next, we also get a new nature. Your new nature, as, as Paul writes in verse six, says, God has spent the, because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, when our daughter was little, when she was a newborn, when she was an infant, when she was a toddler, um, we used to have people who would come to us and give us advice because Carrie and I both were very, very young looking when our baby was born. We looked like we were 12 year olds carrying this baby around. And so people would say, oh, these poor kids, they need advice. And the advice we usually got was almost always the same. It was this, it was, oh, enjoy her while she's this age oh, these are just precious years. These years go by so fast. And and I wish my kids were this age. Now, I know those people meant well. But let me tell you how I took that. Because that literally made me angry when people say that. Because, I mean, at that point in life, don't get me wrong, Carrie and I loved our daughter, loved her, adored her. She She was great. But we were hanging on to sanity by such a small thread. I mean, we were literally just barely keeping our heads above water. I was on very little sleep. Carrie was on zero sleep. That child hated my guts. (laughs) And I had nothing to offer her. And now you're telling me it's gonna get worse. That's, That's basically what you're saying, okay. These are the good days. It goes downhill from here. And I'm like, just drop a bus on my head, okay? I don't wanna go on if this is only going to get worse. And... You know, so now I correct that. When I see new parents, I come to them and I say, hey, enjoy this time. You got, you're gonna have special memories, but good times are ahead too. Don't be afraid. So many parents, I see them go, oh no, my baby's out of diapers. You should throw a party your baby's out of diapers. Oh no, my child's going off to kindergarten. You've got eight hours of freedom. I mean, every stage of your life with your child has its own series of joys. And I'll tell you, I mean, even, even when my kids have been teenagers, yes, life is more complicated, but I've enjoyed those years. And now that my kids are both pretty much adults, I love the relationship that I have with them. We just have a great time. We have a great relationship. And that, that wasn't possible when they were little. And still, looking back, I'm able to see they were right about one thing. There is something very unique and very special about that period between birth and about the age of five. Because for that brief window of time, 
you are the most important person in somebody's world. You are the center of their universe. You know, once they go off to school, they have teachers and they have friends and their world broadens. But for that moment in time, you're everything. I mean, you are the smartest, the strongest, the most capable person they know. All your jokes are funny. That won't always be true. Uh, They just, they turn to you when they're needy. They wanna make you proud. When you come home from work or from the grocery store, it's like Christmas day. They're just so delighted to be with you. Now, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, all four gospels record, he's teaching them and he says, call him father, our father who art in heaven. All four gospels, every time Jesus prays except one, we'll get to that one in a little bit, Every time he calls him father. And the whole, you probably know this, the whole New Testament is written in Greek, right? That's not the language Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke Aramaic, which is the, uh, the form of Hebrew, the, the language that was spoken in the Middle East back then. So they had to translate from Aramaic to Greek because that was the language of the broader world. So when they're recording Jesus's words in prayer, they don't translate his word Abba into Greek. The Greek word for father is pater, from which we get the word paternity. So they leave his original Aramaic term, Abba, and then the rest of his words are in Greek. Why do they preserve that one original word? Because Abba, as opposed to pater, is a word of intimacy. Pater is a very formal word, father. Abba is more like papa, dad. It's something that a little child would say. It's probably the first word most of them learned as little, little boys. What they're saying is, God wants to have a relationship with you that's not like an adult, that's not like a teenager. It, it's, it's like a little child who delights in his father's presence, who adores his daddy and wants to make him proud. That's the relationship God wants to have with you and with me. And some of you might say, well, Jeff, I mean, it's great that supposedly I got a new nature when I was adopted into the family of God and and I'm supposed to adore God now, but the truth is I don't. I'm thankful for him. I can intellectually, I can think about how good he is, but when I open my Bible, I, I get lost. When I try to pray, I get distracted. It's a war every Sunday morning just to get here on, to, to go to church and, and to stay awake. I, I don't, I don't delight in God's presence. What's wrong with me? Nothing's wrong with you except what's wrong with me. We're sinners. And, and we haven't really learned to let him be our father. So let me tell you, let me, let me give you a suggestion. And I think this is gonna apply to many of you. If you don't delight in your father's presence, just tell him that. Tell him, Lord, I want, I want to live in that new nature. I don't want to be a teenager before you. I want to be a, a, a toddler before you. I want to delight in you. I want to enjoy you. I want to experience that, that rapture when, I, when I'm in your presence. I want, to be, I want to think about nothing but you. So teach me that new nature. And keep praying that way over and over again, and you'll see your heart begin to change. You get new status, you get a new nature, and then you get a new future. So verse seven says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Does it bother any of you ladies that he uses the word son there and not the term sons and daughters? Do you wonder why? 
Is it, is it because Paul was a man from a, a world where everything was patriarchy and so daughters didn't count? In fact, that was true in the ancient world. If you were a family and you had sons and daughters, the sons got inheritance when you died. The daughters didn't, so they better marry well. If you had daughters only, well, you had to adopt a, a man. You had, couldn't leave your money to a daughter. What's she gonna do with it? That's the way they thought back then. Is that what Paul's doing here? Is he saying sons count and daughters don't? No, he's not. We know he's not because just a chapter earlier in Galatians 3.28, he very famously writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female for all are one in Christ Jesus. Now, please, I hate that I have to say this. Paul is not saying that gender doesn't exist anymore. He's saying that gender doesn't matter in terms of how you stand before God. You are still male or female, whatever God created you but it doesn't affect how much you are loved. It doesn't affect what he has planned for you now and in the future. See, one of the beautiful things about the gospel is the way it turns everything upside down. We, our, our world has this kind of hierarchy, this caste structure where because you look a certain way or you can make money or you can do these things, uh, then, then you are seen as more important. But you know, Jesus's favorite saying that he said over and over again was the first will be last and the last will be first. And we're gonna get to see that someday on the new earth. I don't know. This is just my imagination. I don't know how heavenly rewards work. We know from the scriptures there will be rewards in heaven for faithfulness. So I don't know, but maybe you're gonna get there and you're gonna find out that the lady who cleaned your office is the mayor of your town. And the preacher that you thought was the most profound, uh, most godly man you'd ever met is pushing a broom, sweeping sidewalks. That's the world we're headed to. So why does Paul use the term sons? If he's coming from a kingdom where gender and status and money and education don't impact our standing before God, why does he say that we're no longer slaves but sons? Well, for that exact reason. He's saying, you live in a world right now where if you're not a certain kind of person, you don't get front row seating. But in God, in God's family, everybody's treated like a son. Men and women, black, white, brown, yellow, good record, bad record, rich, poor, you get treated like a firstborn son, no matter who you are. Your inheritance is in him, not in yourself. So what does that mean? your inheritance. Let's say that my silly little analogy is true. Let's say that I do get to heaven by the grace of God and find out that I'm basically the least in the kingdom. That, you know, in spite of years of uh, being seen as this special person because I can write a sermon or two and because I've got Rev in front of my name, I get there and realize, no, 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 everybody else in this place has been more faithful than I have. I am literally the lowest guy in the city. You know what I get? I still get a new body resurrected, impervious, I'll never get old, never die, never get sick. I, I still get a reunion with all the loved ones who died in Christ before me. And my relationship with them will be better than it ever was on earth because there won't be sin and selfishness between us now and it will never end. There will be no more goodbyes. I get to live in a world of unimaginable beauty that never ends and, and unending adventure and discovery and learning and joy, a world that Jesus constantly compared to a never-ending wedding feast. 
I mean, imagine a feast that never ends and you don't get full and you don't get fat. Sounds good to me. And, and best of all, best of all, I get to know the God who has always known me. I get to plumb the depths of his goodness and his grace and his wisdom and his love. The source of everything I love is right there and I'll be able to know him. And that will never, ever get old. And that's my inheritance. And that's what I get at the end of this life. And not just me, but the guy who is doing time in Huntsville without possibility of parole and and the woman who can't overcome her addictions and the guy who just got kicked out of his family because he messed up one too many times and, and the woman whose marriage just ended and everybody who feels worthless when they're in Christ, they get that same inheritance and it can't ever be denied them. They will never lose it. It can't be taken away. And that is the reason why. Nothing, when you're a child of God, when he is your father, nothing ever permanently defeats you because you're like, this is terrible. This is awful. I am weeping. And yet joy comes in the morning. I'm going home. When this life is done, I am going home. And nothing can take that away from me. Now, why is that true? How can we say this so confidently? Well, not because of Christmas, but because of Good Friday. Think about Good Friday. Think about Jesus hanging on the cross. Think about him slowly, slowly dying with agonizing effort, speaking seven times. And one of those times he spoke words that in Aramaic sound like this, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And theologians and Bible scholars have, have wrestled and debated about what those words mean. And yes, it's, it's a quote from Psalm 22.1. Well, what does that tell us? And, and they go back and forth and I've got my own opinions, but I don't wanna give you opinion. I wanna tell you what I know. Here's what I know for sure. Here's what's undeniable. That is the only time anywhere in the Bible where Jesus talks to his father, but doesn't call him father. It's the only time in the Bible where Jesus prays and doesn't say, Abba. He says, my God. My God, why? Because in that moment, he was rejected for our sake. He was rejected so we could be adopted. In that moment, Jesus became a fatherless child so that we could have a father. And if that's not a Merry Christmas for you, then I don't know what is.